Um, we prayed to begin. So let's turn to Proverbs chapter 1. We're going to read starting in verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealings, in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. All right, so today, this is an overview of the book of Proverbs, and so that's a little bit challenging because we're not just diving into a text. You're trying, how do you, like, not make it dry, right, and technical? And I read about the, maybe four different commentaries I looked at on the introductory material, and it's fairly dry. (laughs) So I listened to a um, sermon by a friend who, or a lecture, I guess, by a friend who's a professor at the Master Seminary. His name is Paul Twist, and he was actually teaching this at a women's Bible study, um, and it's called The Mechanics of Proverbs, and I just relied super heavily on his material because I didn't think it was dry. <laughs> it was, he was saying all the same things as the commentators, but I loved how he pulled it together, so I'm using his outline and a lot of his examples um, today. And I have a pretty simple goal for us today to give us a roadmap of the book of Proverbs. So if you were with us a couple years ago when we studied uh, the redemptive history study, I learned during that study that it makes all the difference in the world if you understand the structure of a book and to understanding what the book is saying, right? So I want us to have a roadmap for the book of Proverbs, and that means understanding the structure of the book, how it functions. How does this book operate in terms of all of scripture? How does it fit into the canon? How does it fit into redemptive history? How can we best approach the Proverbs? How can we best learn and apply them? And how does this relate to redemptive history and the story of scripture? And I felt for me, my husband, actually all my family and my in-laws, they all love doing jigsaw puzzles. I hate it. I hate it. Um, But they love it. And so they're out a lot while they're doing them, especially at Christmas. They've had these like thousand piece puzzles. And um, anyway, if you try to do the puzzle without the picture, I mean, you can cut, I mean, you could find the border and that, but it's makes all the difference in the world to have the picture, right? <laughs> and you're like, oh, that's kind of these these colors go here, these colors, right? So if you take the picture away, it takes I mean, not that I enjoy the experience ever, but it changes the experience even worse, right? When you have the structure of the book, it's like having the picture of the jigsaw. And then as you go through the book, you're like, oh, here's how it all goes together. Here's how it fits, here's what it means, right? Um, for years, I just was like, what is the point of the story of Judah and Tamar, right? You're like reading along, Joseph, and it's like, Judah and Tamar story, why is that there? But when you understand the structure of Genesis, you're like, oh, it makes perfect sense. We're following the redemptive line, what's happening back at the ranch with Canaan, why is God wanting to move his people out of the land of Canaan into Egypt for a while? Like, suddenly it all comes clear when you understand what Genesis is about, right? So I want us to leave today with that framework, so as we're studying Proverbs, we can start putting the pieces where it goes in our study. So I'm going to have four points. First one is the structure of the book. The second one, and I'll repeat them as we go through. The second one is the genre. The third one is interpretation. And the fourth one's going to be application. Then we'll be making some applications as we go through. So one reason that, I don't know, I mean, has anyone here ever heard Proverbs taught through exegetically the whole book? Have you ever heard of it being done? Yeah, me either. Yes. Okay. That's rare, right? That's rare. And if you have heard someone preach it, they usually preach chapters one through nine and stop there because that has more of a 
flow and an argument to it than the later chapters, which are more the Proverbs, actually. Um, and so Proverbs is actually a complicated book. It's not the easiest. It's hard. Um, and uh, one reason people really feel like it has no discernible structure. And I was actually really convicted and learned a lot that Proverbs has structure because when I, I used to think that too. In fact, I had a professor, um, I guess he wasn't my professor, but the provost at my college, when he would speak at chapel, um, I used to say he was like the Proverbs. Like, he has, says these little nuggets that are valuable, but you have no idea where he's going and how they connect, but they're just like, oh. And you'd literally see people, like, we had six chapel misses, and people saved it for when he talked. And so he, he'd get up, and they'd get up, and they would leave. <laughs> because it was so, I mean, it's sad that that happened, but it was impossible to follow. It was just like, it was really impossible to track with. And so I remember thinking, it's kind of like a proverb. Like, that was worthwhile. Just kind of lost in this sea of things you were saying. But Proverbs actually has a structure, and they actually are related to each other, so I shouldn't have said that. It's just my lack of understanding of Proverbs. And the first thing, I'll pass this around to you, um, from his book, um, The Commentary by Walt Key, Proverbs is basically six collections of sayings. So it's front and back, so just take one and pass it around. And so we took this from that commentary. Walt Key is a great commentary to use, but it's really it's more technical. I mean, it's two volumes about that thick on Proverbs. So if you want a commentary that's a lot more accessible, Derek Kidner has a great commentary if you want to get one that is really helpful. But Walt Key is kind of considered one of the best commentators on this book. And so we took his outline, but it's accepted by this, this division of seven sayings is commonly accepted. Um, and so this just shows you the chapter divisions of what are the seven collections of sayings. What is the division in the book? So you can see the structure of Proverbs is even having these seven collections of saying, or you can think of it as two halves. But it's not halves in the sense of literally being divided equally, but more two parts, if you will. So the first nine chapters are the first half or the first part. And they're not technically Proverbs. They're 12 exhortational poems and their purpose is, it's a, you know, the king exhorting his son for leadership. It's the father exhorting his child, right? And so their, their purpose is to condition our hearts and mind to receive the Proverbs, to, to illustrate what is wisdom and what is folly, the two paths that are constantly set before us, and to condition us to receive the wisdom that is going to be coming. In the, not that it's not also wise, but the Proverbs that are coming. So a lot of people teach through the first nine chapters and then stop when... You're all conditioned. You're all ready for what's coming as far as how the book is structured. But then that part, the next parts of the chapters 10 through 31 are the true Proverbs. And that's where I think people have a, I know people have a harder time seeing the connections. Um, and so they sometimes stop there. And so it's kind of counterproductive. So my first application would be that as we go through this study, don't get discouraged, but send, spend the time and effort not only to have your heart be prepared, but to work through those next chapters and see the connections and see how it all fits together and how it, um, how it flows. Um, so that's part one, structure. Seven collections of sayings, two halves. Number two is the genre. So what is a proverb, right? What is a proverb? So I found this definition by H.S. Herbert. Um, a proverb is a parable expressed in a brief, pithy sentence, a vivid and striking speech, a rapidly drawn picture. It has a clearly recognizable purpose, that of a quickening and apprehension of the real and distinct from the wished for or complacently accepted, of compelling the hearer or reader to form a judgment on himself, his situation, and of his conduct. So I kind of thought maybe we needed a more proverb-like definition, a little shorter. But I liked the picture that he gave of a parable expressed in a sentence, right? So as a gold ring and a pig snout, right, is a woman... Who, a beauty who doesn't fear the Lord, right? 
instantly. You have a picture, you understand the moral of the story. Like, it's a parable in, <laughs> in two lines, right? And Proverbs does that a lot. It just paints, you know, uh, paints this picture right away. And so I like that definition of this proverb. It's this parable expressed in a brief, pithy sentence, and it makes you examine your own heart and your conduct. Another example that, I, that Paul Twist used that I just loved and I'm going to be keep using is he said, think of it like a unit of currency. Think of each proverb as a unit of currency. And if I gave you $100 right now, I've opened up some options for you that you didn't have previous. Maybe you can go on a date with your husband or buy a new toy for your kid that you couldn't have before or get those pair of clothes you wanted or, in our case, like, pay off from the leak from the pipe that broke. <laughs> like, take care of a house repair. Like, you, you know, you, if you get more money, right? You can get more opportunities for how you can do that. So think of wisdom as, as these like nuggets of wisdom and currency that once you have them, now you have wisdom and opportunity to live differently, to make wise choices, to operate with more options in life, in the sphere of life that we are in, to help you function better in the area that it gives wisdom on. So I'm going to take that thought and just carry it right into the in the verse one, not verse one, but chapter one, it says we have Proverbs. We also have wise sayings. So what are the wise sayings? What is wisdom? Well, to understand what wisdom is and wisdom literature, we have to understand is how does that fit in with the redemptive story of scripture? How does it fit into what's come before and, and what's going to come after? Well, the law, and so really, how does this relate to the law? So Proverbs, the law, sorry, going back to the law, the law is the foundation of ancient Israel right? It's the do's and don'ts. It's the absolute, it is the foundation of everything they do. But the law doesn't teach you, so think of the law as a lattice or a grid. So if it's a lattice, it gives you all of your, like these are your unmovable points, but it doesn't tell you how to live in the in-between space, the gray areas. So the law, for example, says do not lie, but it doesn't tell you how you're supposed to comfort someone who's grieving. It doesn't tell you how you're, when you're supposed to be really firm when you rebuke your child and when you need to let it be a shoulder for them to cry on, right? It doesn't tell you um, how to answer it, your, your boss in a difficult situation at work. It tells you don't lie, right? It tells you don't commit adultery. It doesn't tell you how you're supposed to engage appropriately in a right relationship with the opposite sex. It tells you you know where the line is. What does it mean? There's a lot before you get to that line, right? In a relationship. It doesn't explain that. Um, so Proverbs and wisdom literature, Job, Ecclesiastes, they f they're what fill in the lattice. They're what fill in the grid. Because most of life is lived in that gray space, right? And so it comes in, how do you suffer? The law doesn't tell you how you suffer, but Job does. How do you suffer as a Christian? How do you suffer in trial? So the wisdom literature fills in. And that's how it fits together, if that makes sense, and how it works. The other thing that we have to, and so then, I, I, if I could go back and like rewrite these lessons, one thing that I'm like, bonus points, if you come in and tell me connections you make between the law and the Proverbs as we go through the study. Maybe just have a highlighter that's a different color than you normally use. And if you come up with a proverb that's like, oh, that ties into something that comes before, highlighted in blue, and share when we have our lesson time. Look for the connections between the law and Proverbs because there are, they abound. The second thing, so we have Proverbs, we have these wise sayings. We're seeing that it fits in redemptive history by filling in the gray space and how we're to live wisely within the framework of the law and God's commands, right? Um, but also, these are the Proverbs of Solomon, son, excuse me, son of David, king of Israel. We can't gloss over that. The Davidic covenant 
right? Um, if you remember from our redemptive history study, if you like Tolkien, um, Tolkien has, remember, he makes these rings of power. But he made one ring that rule, controlled all of the rings. So one ring to um, rule them all. Well, God kind of, well, maybe Tolkien stole this from God. God kind of does the same thing. There's one covenant that rules them all. All the covenants previous to the Davidic covenant, all of those promises get rolled into the Davidic covenant. The Abrahamic, the Noahic, parts of the Mosaic, all of them can be found in the promises that God makes to David. So the Davidic covenant becomes the one covenant to rule them all, right? And everything in the world rises or falls within the Davidic covenant. If the Davidic covenant fails, we are lost. If the Davidic covenant succeeds, the world will be redeemed. And it can seem in, in Samuel like maybe we're overstating it, but who becomes the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant? And where does the line end? With Christ, right? So obviously we know that God is never going to fail in his plans and his, he can't be thwarted. And so with God, it's not like he's gambling or risking. But for our minds, I feel like the illustration is really helpful to see like he puts everything into this line, this king. He's going he's to be the second Adam, a second David, and he's going to rise or he's going to fall, but we know for sure he's going to rise, right? And that's going to set the trajectory of the world and if redemption can be accomplished. So when he says the Davidic king of Israel, He's talking about the Davidic, like, this is the king of David, so i.e., we're talking about the Davidic line, the Davidic covenant. And as we've seen through our whole study of Samuel, as the king goes, so goes the people. When the king does well, the people do well, and the kingdom flourishes. And when the king does poorly, the people do poorly, and the kingdom fails, eventually into exile, right? Um, So, without digressing too much into the Davidic line, we could talk about that for a long time. Um, We have to see the Proverbs in the context of the Davidic covenant, Okay? And we have to also realize that though the Proverbs were written pre-Christ, we have the full canon now, and we know the rest of the story, well, not the whole rest, but the next part of the story pretty significantly, right? That Christ came, and he is wisdom embodied. No one lived as skilled at fully as Christ. He is wisdom. And so we need to not go through the Proverbs, separating it one from the covenant promises, or forgetting that our Savior lived this perfectly and looking to his example and looking to follow how he lived all of the law and all of the gray areas in perfect wisdom um, as the Davidic king. Which brings us to, right, the fear, the, the fear of the Lord. So still under genre, we looked at what is a proverb, what is wisdom, the Davidic king, um, all set up in this first chapter, but it also says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So remember, if, if wisdom is currency... Our currency doesn't hold value everywhere. I can't go, right, and spend dollars in Israel. I have to put it into Israeli money, right? I have to go to a bank and transfer. So your currency is only valid, valid in your country, in your nation, where it is, or the people who have deals with you, right? It's not valid everywhere. The currency of Proverbs, the wisdom of Proverbs, it only has value with those who fear the Lord, right? If you don't fear the Lord, you can have this book, have no value for you at all. So what is the fear of the Lord? Simply put, to submit to God's will. Fear of the Lord is a reverential awe, but it goes past that into submitting to God's will. One commentator said it is the affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. It's the affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. The fear of the Lord is active, not passive. So you can have two Christians, but you can have one who's not fearing the Lord. 
right? So what does that look like? So Brittany and I both teach. We both get a paycheck from our place of business. Sorry, you're across from me. You're an example right now. Poor Brittany. I will make you the godly one in this. Brittany gets her paycheck, and she prays about how God would have her use her money. She thinks about what God has commanded, what would be righteous before him, what would be obedient to him, and that's how she spends her money. I just spend mine. But the tricky thing is, we could both spend it the same way. Maybe I was raised in a home where it's just automatic for me to tithe. So I even tithe, and then, you know, you got to pay your bills, and you got to eat, and you got to... And I'm not some crazy person who's just, you know, out there. But one is intentionally thinking through what does it mean to follow the Lord, and the other is just kind of on autopilot, living either culturally how they were used to. And the one who's thinking about how I'm submitting to the Lord, that is the activeness. That, that is fearing God. And that is the intentionality that we are called to live our Christian life with. So again, Paul Twist makes this application. He says, we have to make sure we are not living a casual, complacent Christian existence. If you are not living in a very intentional way, if your Christian walk day by day is not carefully considered, and you're not diligent to think about how you're submitting to God's revealed will, then actually your time in this book will prove fruitless. Right? We ha the fear of the Lord is active. So that's the genre. Point three is interpretation. So here's why one, one example of why Proverbs is complicated. Proverbs 26.4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Good wisdom right there. Guess what verse 5 says? Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So which one are you supposed to do? Kind of sounds like scripture is contradicting itself, right? <laughs> Don't answer him. Answer him. Back-to-back -back verses, right? There's not like all this other stuff explaining it, separating it. Nope. So what we have to do is understand some of how Proverbs works, how Hebrew poetry works. So the first thing, there's just three general statements that I want to make. I guess you're making a subpoint, generally true statements, about how the Proverbs function. So generally, they're two-line statements. There are exceptions to that, but they're two-line statements. And you will see one of three patterns emerge. And the first pattern... Line two is synonymous with line one. It reiterates it. An example of this would be Proverbs 11:22, Like a gold ring in a pig's snout. Automatically, if I stopped there, you kind of have a picture of where this is going and what it means, right? <laughs> Those things don't go together. It's devaluing the gold ring. It's making it not beautiful. It's a beautiful woman without discretion, right? So you're saying the same thing two different ways. It's reiterating this truth. That's the first thing you look for. The second thing you look for is when it's a contrast, when it's antithetical to, when line two is antithetical to line one. So Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses, right? Opposites. Here's the effect of hatred. Here's the effect of love, okay? So they'll contrast each other. Third is when they're synthetic, when it expands. So Proverbs 14, 26, the fear of the Lord, um, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. It's great. Then it goes on, it expands, and his children will have a refuge. You for the Lord, and you're going to be confident, but also your children can be blessed through that, right? It expands it. So those are three general principles that you're going to see operate with a lot of the Proverbs that we have. So the second thing that you have to do is to examine the context of the Proverbs. So again, this is Hebrew poetry. It's Hebrew parallelism. And in parallel, Hebrew parallelism, instead of saying these two things are equal, A equals B, it actually is saying, if A, then even more so, B. It's, e it's even, if A is true, then B is even more true. 
So an example of this would be Proverbs 14, 28. And the multitude of people is the glory of a king, but without people, a prince is ruined. So if you're a king without any people, you've kind of failed, right? <laughs> like, you know, who are you really king of? Like, you're kind of, so to, to be a king, you really need a nation. And so the glory of a king is to have people. But without a people, a prince is ruined, right? So why is he changing from king to prince, right? It's a question to ask ourselves. It's not, it's intentional. So one, you have to remember Solomon is the king teaching his son, who's the prince. And he's talking about how he's going to be ruling, right? So he's like, the glory of the king is his people, is his nation. The king doesn't have value apart from his people. How much more important is it then for the prince to have a relationship with his people before he comes into authority? How much more important is that? So if it is true, the glory of the kingdom is his people, it's really, really important for you because this is what is coming up in your life to be establishing relationships with your people now. Even more important than, so it expands on it, right? Um, the other thing we have to realize is Hebrew poetry is terse. I love that. I do not, I was an English major, but I do not like poetry. So true, don't tell, the, don't tell, don't tell our boss, Brittany. I do not like poetry. And I don't like, it's like, oh, but the symbolism could be this or it could be that and it's long and wordy and verbose and it connects all. But English poetry does that. It like explains itself and it has all this, and Hebrew poetry is like, this is the point, people. <laughs> like, here's what we, but just because it's terse doesn't mean that it's not related to what's coming before and after, right? It is, um, it's just not the format that we're usually used to. So we need to remember the content, remember the, the general principles, remember the context, and then we need to read the whole of Proverbs. And with that, I'm just going to say, I'm going to put these two ones together because we need to realize that Proverbs aren't probabilities. What do I mean by that? Um, we want to be careful that we don't create theological problems in how we talk about the Proverbs. So we will often say this is generally true, but it's not always true. And we'll take a verse like, train up a child in the way he should go. For when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's generally true, but it, we all think of examples where that doesn't happen, right? Um, but what we're doing right there is taking that proverb out of context because we are not looking at what all of Proverbs or even all of Scripture says about parenting, right? If we were to just take that verse, train up a child in a way he should go, that verse does not talk about any responsibility the child has. So if you go through the rest of Proverbs, the child is given quite a bit of responsibility, to listen and to obey and to heed wise, like, but it, it takes that off the plate. It doesn't ever talk about affection or love for your children. It doesn't talk about discipline, really. I mean, you could do a lot of teaching, I guess, without disciplining. It doesn't talk about not exasperating your children. Like, it leaves a lot out. But sometimes we'll take this one verse and we're like, oh, this is, like, this is it on parenting. Like, we have to keep things in its context. Another example, turn with me to Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16, verse 3. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. I feel like that's going to be a Hobby Lobby sign someday, right? We'll all have it in our kitchens or on our walls. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. And that is a promise I would love to claim, right? But how many times have you prayed over something and committed to the Lord, but it has not fully panned out? So then we either have a theological problem that God was faithful on Monday, but he's not faithful on Tuesday. Or you have a problem that you don't really commit. So now you have this huge legalistic problem. What does it mean to really commit my ways? And how am I going to commit? Because I clearly don't commit enough. My plans aren't working out. Right? It's formulaic Christianity. Or we could read verses 1 and 2 and see how this verse works. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. 
All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. That's saying we can all justify everything we do, right? But the Lord weighs the spirits. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Changes the context and understanding. And that's not the totality of what Proverbs says about God's sovereignty over man's decisions, even in the book of Proverbs, right? So we need to realize that God is true to what he's revealed in his word, but we have to keep it in context and also remember that scripture interprets scripture and not pull even Proverbs out of the greater context of the Bible really being one book, right? So um, remember the context, read the whole of the Proverbs. And so the other thing to remember is that life is complex. So as we're going through it and you're thinking, man, how does this relate? Um, say my husband gets a call. Friend's like, Dan, I need to meet with you. Dan knows it's important. He's like, okay, we'll go to lunch. I'll pay. Money's tight for this guy. That's going to have ramifications in our life. So one, Dan's just made a financial decision so that that money is spent. So we're not going to spend on something else. Two, now he's being a little bit behind at work, right? Because he's taking this time out of the middle of his day to do lunch. He doesn't always normally do that. So we might need to stay late at work to make up that time which means he's going to come home late, and that's going to affect our parenting because he's going to get an hour or two less with the kids. And all these things are fine. Like that, This is normal in the course of life. We make these decisions. I don't mean any of this is a I'm just saying one simple decision can have ramifications throughout your whole day, right? How much more so? Big decisions. So when the Proverbs seem to be like, oh, we're talking about friendship, and the next verse is about money. But do you see in our real life how closely connected those things are? And then the next proverb seems to be about time. The next proverb seems to be about but just, a taking a, just a decision to take your friend to lunch impacts your money, your time, your marriage, your kids, your parents. Like, so these, he's, Solomon is diving down into the nitty-gritty complexity of the real world that we live in. And so as we look at these Proverbs, don't get too narrow-minded, I guess, or, or closed off to like, life does really work. Like, I'm not saying look for connections that aren't there, but I'm also saying realize like, life is complex. <laughs> and these Proverbs address and reflect that complexity right? And a lot of our th life is interconnected, even if that one topic and that topic don't seem directly related. In life, everything's interconnected, right? And there can be a connection to that teaching. So then some application points. Remember, as we've already said, even though this was written pre-cross, we live in a post-cross world. We live in the, the, um, the, the New Testament, not the Old Testament, right? And so Sometimes that can be really challenging. How do you rightly apply a book of the Old Testament to our lives? Thankfully, there's not much new under the sun, and life hasn't changed that much, and so you don't have to make a lot of adjustments in Proverbs that way. But to just remember again, it would be a mistake to go through this book not looking to the example of Christ and realizing this wisdom has been perfectly lived. No one lived more skillfully than Christ. Second thing to realize, again, fear of the Lord. Wisdom without salvation is worthless. This book has an enormous presupposition that you are saved, right? Chapter one, it's the fear of the Lord. This is not talking, this is not some just general um, manual for people, right? And there's, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of wisdom, and this is not a biblical proverb, but like we, probably everybody you talk to would agree that a stitch in time saves nine, right? But if you were, and, and so I'm sure you could pull out some proverbs here and everyone would be like, yeah, that's, that's true. But maybe if you were to share that, you know, money come through dishonest means, is, there's a proverb about that, and somebody's cheating on their taxes, well, that might not go over so well, right? So the world will like the wisdom of Proverbs as long as it goes along with what their agenda is, 
right? It's not something that is truth to them, that is permanent to them, that is God's word and calling on their life. So I'm not saying that if you're not saved, you're an idiot. There are obviously geniuses out there um, who aren't saved. But wisdom that God values and wisdom that God says is skillful living as he defines it, that is dependent on the fear of the Lord and salvation. Um, And then I just want us to close by looking at the author. Um, The author of the book is Solomon. Well, there there are multiple authors. Solomon wrote most of them. There's also Lemuel and a few others. But I want to look at Solomon. So we're going to turn to, I'm hopefully going to find it this morning. I literally could not find this. But in Kings, I think it's in 1 Kings. I wrote it down wrong in my book, in my notes. Um, 1 Kings chapter... Um, two. Yeah, it was there. I really don't, I don't know why I couldn't find that this morning. Okay, First Kings chapter two. So let's just consider Solomon. He's writing these books, but Solomon was the 10th son of David. He was the second son of Bathsheba. So let's just remember the context of what she's coming into. He's the son of what probably everyone thought was that woman, right? Like things really went downhill in the kingdom after that. Um, he saw his sister, would have known, been around his sister, has been raped by her, was it cousin or brother, which led to brothers killing each other, which led to Absalom basically starting a little mini civil war of rebellion. He personally, Solomon had another brother, want to take the throne from him, which would have eventually led to his death. So he's seen kind of it all, if you will, right? Like he has seen the, the ugly, ugly side of life. But listen to what David says to him in 1 Kings chapter 2. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, and that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their ways, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their hearts and with all their man on the throne of Israel. Do you notice right here, like, as he's going through, like, statutes and commandments, but it sounds like what Solomon opens up Proverbs with, you know, to keep all these things. And then he says, as it is written in the law of Moses, right? You need to keep God's word. You need to know God's word and you need to keep it. Turn to, um, oh, this was the one I couldn't find, First Chronicles 11. Go, turn, turn to First Chronicles 28. First Chronicles 28. An, a parallel account of Solomon, David's charge to Solomon. Um, I'm going to start in verse 7. It says, I will establish his, this is, um, I think God's promise to David. Uh, We'll go back to verse six, actually. He said to me, it is Solomon, your son, who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever if he continues strong in keeping my commandments and my rules as he is today. Now, therefore, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord and in the hearing of our God, observe and seek out all the commandments of the Lord, your God, that you may possess this land and leave it for an inheritance to your children after you. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. 
If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Then turn over to chapter 29. David is praying before the people, and he says in verse uh, 17, I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Over and over and over again, David is saying, keep the commandments, walk in the ways, be strong and courageous to keep the commandments and walk in the ways and keep the statutes. Like, it, it, you almost feel like... Solomon's really just writing down what David had been telling him after I read all of that. But how does Solomon's life go, right? Then, then Solomon gets, God, what can I have? Can I have wisdom? And God makes him the wisest man ever, right? And Solomon has 700 wives and 1,000, I mean, yeah, 700 wives, 300 concubines. He ha- multiplies the chariots. He, mul- he, he violates all the commands, right? The, remember, again, the three Gs, the kings have no gals, no girls, no giddy-up right? Those were the three things they couldn't have. And so he, multi- he multi- violated all of that. So the, those were the things the king couldn't do. He did all of it. And then the king was commanded to do something, to write in the book of the law and read it every day, right? Keeping those statutes and those commandments. And Solomon sets up the high places and builds temples for his wives to worship their idols, right? Solomon writes the book of Ecclesiastes, where basically every kind of promiscuity under the sun is mentioned. I did wealth, I did women, I did wine, I did money, I did, like, every category you can think about, and he calls it all vanity, right? God says, because of what you've done, I'm going to take care of the kingdom from you, and he goes, oh, as long as it doesn't happen during my lifetime. I mean, it's kind of this indifferent attitude toward this judgment from God, which, despite all of David's failings, he didn't ever have an indifferent attitude towards God's judgment, right? That always broke him and brought him back. And while it does, you know, Ecclesiastes does end with Solomon saying, remember your creator in the days of your youth, right? He comes back to what is the end of the matter? You need to do what I was told to do, remember God and follow him. So I do believe Solomon was a believer, but it goes back to that active fear of the Lord versus the lack of, right? And then he's writing this book to his son, right? So how does that go with Rehoboam? Well, basically the one story we know about Rehoboam is he rejected all the wise counsel he was given in the kingdom split right? So I want this to be a sobering reminder to us as we go through this book, it can be useless in our lives, right? This is currency that is only valuable for those who fear the Lord. Otherwise, there's no reason why it will turn out any differently than the author of the book, right? So not to be a downer, but just just, because we can end up differently, but just to be sober-minded about the word. And to also remember, I sometimes um, scripture is very simple. Trust and obey. <laughs> the message, trust and obey and obey the word, which you have to know and do. And sometimes it can seem like, well, the application's always the same, but that's what scripture says over and over and over again. And it's probably the area that most believers struggle the most in consistency and growth. Because, I mean, if Satan can keep us from our source of truth and from our food and our lifeline, then he's really incapacitated us, Right? Um, so don't let the repetition of the message make you grow dull to it, what I'm trying to say. 
All right, let us pray, and we'll be done. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to learn your wisdom from the mind of God. This book has come to us. You have revealed yourself, and, and you have revealed um, this wisdom to us, and I pray that we would be women who fear you and who are changed by your word, who are not um, passive in our fear of the Lord, but are active in it, and that this book would reap great fruit um, in our lives, that we would love you more, obey you more, trust you more, um, grow as, you're, as you promised, that your spirit is going to complete the work that you began in us. And this would be one of the ways in which he does that, one of the means through which we become more like your son. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.